My neighbor that lives behind us has a couple of beautiful trees that are quaking aspen. I like them. They're beautiful. But there is a problem. You know if you have quaking aspen planted near your lawn because the shoots, the roots come underneath and all over my lawn are these little shoots of the aspen trees. And so I go out there and I mow them off and then go around and, you know, take my clippers and try to clip them off and do what I can to get rid of them. But you know what? A couple, three days as they start to grow, here there are another 20 or 30 little shoots around my lawn. And I've tried taking a shovel and dig into the roots and pull what I can and dig along the fence to try to get rid of the roots, and they're still there. And I think about that, I think, you know, that the problem goes far deeper than I can get to. I feel sometimes like I just need a backhoe, you know. Just rip it all up and start over. It's a great analogy, I think, for sin in our lives. Little things crop up, we've blown it again, something went wrong, we yelled at our kids or whatever it might be, and we, you know, we try to clip it off, make the lawn look pretty nice again, make things look pretty good again, but then they just come right back up. And we realize that our efforts to get rid of it and deal with it, deal with the guilt, deal with the sin, are inadequate. We can't do it. We don't have what it takes to deal with it. My friend Tom, not his real name, came to me again, overwhelmed with guilt. He'd fallen into anger again. It was something that kept coming up and it keeps coming up. And he'd yelled at his wife and kicked the door and was mad at the kids and, and he prayed about it, tried to give it to God, and it kept coming back. And, and he was overwhelmed with the guilt. He tried to make it up to them, but still felt guilty. You know, this is something we all face because we all have those shoots that keep coming up. Our sin, our guilt keeps coming back. How do you deal with it when you blow it again? Now, there's some pretty common ways that I just want to highlight for you quickly as We think about our ways of trying to deal with that guilt before the Lord. One of the common ways is just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, we try to hide. Because when you feel guilty and exposed, you know you're wrong. You feel naked before the Lord and it's it's painful and so we hide like they did. We want to somehow pretend like it didn't happen or dismiss it. We get busy. We just think, you know, I'll try to push it out of my mind. I'll try to push it away and just hope that no one sees. Another common response is excusing or blaming. We all do these. And like Adam and Eve again, they started excusing and blaming. So Adam finally says when he's confronted about a sin of eating the forbidden fruit, he says, well, the woman you gave me, She gave to me and I ate. It's really her fault, but ultimately, God, it's your fault because you gave her to me. And we excuse, we we find a reason. It's our dysfunctional family or it's, you know, I've had a bad day or I'm tired or whatever. So we excuse it or we blame. Another common response to dealing with our guilt and our sin is we punish ourselves. We just think, 
you know, if I, if I just feel bad long enough, maybe that'll take care of it. And I've got to admit, this is one that I fall into. Uh, one of the things that keeps cropping up in my life is this tendency to want to promote myself and compare myself to others. And in my mind, it may not come out, you know, it may not be that visible. It's, it's like the lawn that's been mowed clean, but if you really look closely, <laughs> you can see the shoots. It's, it's this tendency to compare and put others down so that I try to feel better about myself. And it's ugly. It's destructive. And it crops up again. And again, and one of the things I do is I just think, if I just feel bad enough for long enough, you know, maybe that'll deal with my guilt. Another common response is to work hard. We've blown it and we just think, man, if I just do the right thing hard enough, it'll counterbalance the bad and I won't feel bad about myself anymore. And so we get busy doing ministry or having our quiet time or reading the Bible more or whatever to deal with it. But... If you think about it, all these are our ways to deal with our sin and our guilt ourselves. And all of them are inadequate. They don't ultimately work. Is there a better way? We all face this because we're all sinners, every one of us. Is there a better way? Well, yes, of course there is. Absolutely. We are sinners in a sinful world and we all sin regularly. We can't avoid it. So how can we deal with our sin and our guilt in a healthy way, in a godly way, and use it to move on as an opportunity for growth and an opportunity to draw closer to the Lord rather than an opportunity to pull back from Him? Well, our passage today helps us understand that. We're in Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 28. But let me catch you up on the whole book of Exodus real quickly here. Remember, the book starts with Israel enslaved and not in contact with their God at all. They'd lost that sense, that faith that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had, and now they're enslaved in Egypt and they're lost and enslaved. And God comes and brings Moses and does miracles, incredible miracles, to bring them out and across the Red Sea and redeem them. He's a redeeming God. And He wants us to be His redeemed people. So He creates this redeemed people. that He wants to be His people, His possession. Then He took Israel into the wilderness. Why did He do that? Because He wanted them not just to be a redeemed people, but a people who could depend on Him. A dependent people. And God does that with us as well. He saves us. But then He takes us into the wilderness so we will learn to trust Him with our lives. And then God takes them to Mount Sinai and on Mount Sinai gives them the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and then a number of other stipulations and laws. Why does He do that? He's creating a covenant relationship. A covenant is merely an agreement between two parties about how they're going to relate to one another. That's a covenant. It's like a contract. And God creates a covenant with Israel because He wants them to know how to relate to Him and He tells them how He will relate to them. He wants relationship with us. And then, from Mount Sinai again, He talks to Moses and gives him a plan for the tabernacle. God's a holy God. 
But God as a holy God wants to dwell in our midst. He wants to be in relationship with us. He's gone from being in the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness to being on the mountain that no one could touch to now saying, build me a tabernacle so I can dwell right in the middle of the camp. Did you notice that's always God's way? He's always goes more and more to the center of our lives, more and more wanting to dwell at the very center of who we are because he loves us, because he designed us for that. And so he keeps moving more and more into our lives. It's a wonderful thing. So he wants us to learn to be a worshiping people, a covenant people and a worshiping people. So he gives them the plan for the tabernacle. But as we saw a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, Israel, while Moses is up getting the plan for the tabernacle, wonderful, God's done all these miraculous things. They're down there going, uh, as for this Moses guy, you know, we haven't seen him for a few days. Uh, I'll tell you what, Aaron, make us a golden calf. Let's let's worship that because this, you know, we don't know about this Moses or this God. So make us a golden calf. And within a few days, they're violating at least the first three of the Ten Commandments and probably most of the rest. They've turned their backs on God. They are guilty before him. And a terrifying passage we'll read in a moment. In chapter 33, God says, You know what, Moses? You go with the people into the promised land. I'm not going to go. I can't go with such a stiff-necked people. I'll send an angel to help you, but I will not go. And Moses cries out to him. And, but you know, God isn't done. He has a plan. And as he reveals his plan for how we can be spiritually renewed, the path we need to walk for spiritual renewal, it helps us understand how we can deal with our sin and guilt that we fall into on a daily basis. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to, uh, to Exodus chapter 33. And I'm actually going to step back and look in Exodus 30. We'll be in 34. I'm going to look at 33, 3. Through four to look at the first step on the path to spiritual renewal. Chapter 33, verse 3 and 4. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, God says. But I will not go with you because you were a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. It's a picture of, or, of mourning. It's, it's their realizing they've been faced with their rebellion, with their sin of the golden calf. The first step to spiritual renewal is to honestly face your sinfulness, to honestly face it, to admit it. But this is hard for us, isn't it? Because again, we want to hide, dismiss, excuse, but until you say, yes, I did it, and admit it freely, you can't enter into the spiritual renewal path. It's like a little kid, you know, Billy hits Tommy, and, and, and you see the whole thing, and you say, Billy, 
Did you just hit Tommy? No, I didn't hit him. I saw you hit him. Well, I didn't mean to. You know, again, all the excuses, all... It's really hard, but until Billy owns up to what he did, he'll never face what he did, and you can't really help him. You can't deal with it. And that's the beginning point for us as well. Have you noticed how hard that is, though? It's like when somebody in the news gets caught, a Ted Haggard or you name it, fill in the blank. When they get caught, they will confess only as much as they think they need to at, the, at first. And it's only as more of the story gets, come, begins to come out and more comes out that they finally admit it all when they have no choice. That's our tendency. It's hard for us to come clean. But that's exactly, I believe, what God wants us to do. That's what he's trying to encourage Israel to do here. As he says, you're stiff-necked. Face up to it. Face up to who you are. Admit it. So we can begin to deal with it. We've got to do that. We've got to admit, do the same as uh, Israel is encouraged to do. James chapter 5 says this, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. We've got to come clean. We've got to come clean to ourselves. Yes, I did it, period. We've got to come clean to God. Yes, Lord, I did it. And we've got to come clean to someone else, too, I think. I think that's what that passage is teaching. If you really want to experience healing, you need to have somebody in your life to share it with. A friend, a spouse, or somebody that you can share it and say, yes, I blew it again. Would you pray for me for my healing? That's part of coming clean. Some of us can rationalize, well, I don't need to confess some, someone else. I've confessed to God. But, but it's part of exposing yourself and admitting, yeah, I'm a sinner. And I need his forgiveness to be able to share it with somebody else. I like the prayer in chapter 34, verse 9. We'll come back to this in a minute, but I want to highlight something in chapter 34, verse 9. As Moses is praying before the Lord, And he says, O Lord, if I had found grace in your eyes, favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin. Now notice that Moses was not down on the plain with the golden calf. He was up on the mountain with God. But he recognizes he needs forgiveness just as much as all the other people do. So he is willing to say, I need forgiveness too. I need you to touch my life. Forgive our iniquity and our sin. There's a book and a quote. You've heard us quote, Rod, myself, at various times. I want to quote it again because it's, it's very succinct and powerful from Jan Hedinga, his book, Follow Me. And the quote is, The power of sin is in its hiddenness. The power of sin is in its hiddenness. I found this to be true. It's when we hide it 
that sin continues to have power over us and we fall back into it again and again and again. The beginning path to getting beyond it is to not hide it, but to own it, admit it freely. That's the first step on the path to spiritual renewal. The second step is to count on God's character. And if you're following the outline in the bulletin, I'm switching two and three here. Uh, I think it fits better with the passage. It's to count on God's character. Now, I find my tendency, and I don't know if this is true for you, but when I blow it, when I sin again, when I feel that conviction, my tendency is to focus on me and think, okay, what did I do wrong? And how do I, how do I deal with it? How do I clean it up? How do I fix it? And the trouble is, the more I look at me, the more of a mess I begin to create. And if you, if you look at yourself, all you'll find, you, you know, it's like the lawn can look pretty good from a distance. But you look, start looking really close and you're going to find all kinds of little weeds and little shoots and little things sticking up that are a mess. And so when we begin to look at our own lives and focus on that, it only takes about 30 seconds and you're going to be pretty depressed. <laughs> That's true for me anyway, because we're a mess. That's why the encouragement here is to focus on God. And Moses does this. This is a wonderful passage, a wonderful reminder of that. That forgiveness can't be based on who we are and us cleaning up our act or doing it right or whatever. Forgiveness has to be based on God and who He is and His character. So in the midst of this turmoil and the sin and God says, I can't go with you, Moses, in the last passage we saw last week that David taught, Moses says, show me your glory. Moses realizes that he and the people have no chance unless they begin to see God for who he really is. And so God reveals who he is in this chapter, chapter 34. He reveals his glory. And as he does so, we begin to see that forgiveness is based on Him and who He is, not on us. Notice verse 6 and 7 of chapter 34. Let me begin with verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Him and proclaimed His name, the Lord. God said, I will make all my goodness pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name. Now He's doing it. I will proclaim my name, the Lord. And He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children to the sin of the fathers for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. He says, I will proclaim my name. And then what he does is he describes his character. And it's a marvelous description of who God is. In fact, it's the first place in the Old Testament that God really reveals his character so completely. And it's a beautiful description that gets carried on and repeated over and over again throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Now, some of you have been raised or been told or thought the idea that, you know, the Old Testament God, that's a God who's a God of judgment. But the New Testament God, that's a God of love. 
But you know what? The Old Testament says more about God's loving kindness, His compassion, His mercy, His faithfulness, His grace than the New Testament does. Did you know that? It's the same God all the way through. He's just moving us to a place where we can trust Him and He's moving God's people throughout history to be a people who can trust Him and depend on Him. So in this passage, he describes his character, begins with compassion. He says, I am a compassionate God. That means one who looks on us in our pain, in our struggle, in our failure, in our sin, and looks upon us with caring, compassion, longing to make it right. He's a gracious God. He's compassionate and he's gracious. That's a marvelous word that says we don't deserve to be blessed. In fact, we deserve judgment. But God's grace says I look upon you and I will give you good things. I will give you wonderful things even though you don't deserve them. That's how God looks at us, at his people. He says he's slow to anger. That means it takes, God has a very long fuse. It takes a long time before he brings judgment. He does everything he can to avoid judging us because he doesn't want to do that. He's not a cruel, judgmental God. He's a God that does everything he can to avoid judging us. He's a God abounding in loving kindness. That's a wonderful word that describes loyal love, that God keeps pursuing us no matter what with his love. I want to bless you. I want to bless you. I want to bless you. I want to give you life. And he's abounding in faithfulness, which means he's always trustworthy. There's never a time that we can't trust him because he's so good and caring and consistent in his character. He's totally trustworthy. Then he says he forgives iniquity, forgives transgression, forgives sin. Those three words cover all the bases, folks. Iniquity is, is that the deeper roots of sinfulness that we can't get to, that the sinful acts keep springing out of, the transgressions and the sins. And God says, I forgive that. I forgive the actions. I forgive the ones that you intentionally chose to rebel against me. I forgive them. I wash them all away. That's the kind of God I am. That's my character. So when you feel overwhelmed by sin and by guilt, remember who God is. Focus on His character, not your failure, but on Him. He longs to forgive. He does say, yes, I'm a just God, and there is a place that if you continue to turn away from my forgiveness, continue to reject my forgiveness... He doesn't say clean up your act. He says, no, if you continue to walk away from my forgiveness, then there are consequences to your choices. And you will experience them. And even the following generations will experience them. Interesting, in the book of Ezekiel, later God reveals more of himself and says, you know what? I will only hold sin against the person who does it, not their children. It will not be carried on. Amazing. So God reveals more of his heart then to forgive us. So Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, here's my glory. I'm a forgiving, loving, gracious, compassionate God. That's the most glorious thing about God. There's no other God ever created in the universe that people have tried to make up in their religions 
that are forgiving like Him. He says, this is my glory. I'm a forgiving God. And Moses' response in verse 8. You don't see it in the translation. It says he hurried to fall on his face. <laughs> he, he was such in a rush to worship God, he fell down. I can't believe you're such a marvelous, forgiving God. And, it, and then he cried out in verse 9. I already read it for forgiveness for himself and for the people. If this is who you are, God, then simply pass on your forgiveness to us. So the second step, first, admit your sinfulness. Second step is to count on God's character, his forgiving character, not on yours, but on his. Third step is to rely on your mediator. In this whole description Only Moses gets to come up the mountain. Notice verse 3, God speaking. No one is to come up with you, Moses, or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. Only Moses is a mediator. Only he gets to go talk with God. Anytime the people challenged that, they got in big trouble. Remember Korah's rebellion? They said, we're going to burn incense like the priests. We're going to claim that we have access to God. And the earth swallowed them up. Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister in Numbers chapter 12, said, who is this Moses? God can speak to us just as much as you, Moses. You think you're so great. And God gave Miriam leprosy as a sign of judgment that there was only one mediator between the people of Israel and God, and that was Moses. And they had to go through him. So who's our mediator? Jesus. Hebrews 8, chapter 6 says, Jesus is our new mediator of a new covenant, a new way to relate to God. We cannot come to God directly except through Jesus, through the cross of Christ. Now, church history got this wrong. A lot of times through church history, some different groups, different religions, Because they said, well, the Old Testament needed Moses or a priest, so we need to have a priest or a pastor or somebody like that to have access to God. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we have access to God directly, every one of us, through our mediator, Jesus Christ. And Jesus sits at the right hand of God, Romans 8, verse 31 and following, and intercedes for us constantly. Do you realize what that means? It means every time you sin, every time your iniquity comes forth, every time you struggle and fail and disobey God, if somebody tries to accuse you before God, Satan, his demons, whomever, said, look what, look what Sam did, look what Sue did, look what Julie did, look what Tammy did, look what fill in the blank, look what Jackson did. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them completely because I already bore the punishment for that. That's covered. And it says He intercedes for us constantly. There is nothing you can do that Jesus will not intercede for. It will all be forgiven. He is our mediator. He died on the cross and He applies the cross to every accusation against us. I died for that. I paid the penalty for that. So we can rely on our mediator. 
So when we feel guilty, we admit it. Yes, I did it. We turn and we say, Lord, but you're a forgiving God and I trust you as that. You're not a condemning God like I feel like you are. You are a forgiving, compassionate, gracious God. And Lord, you gave us Jesus on the cross who died for my sin. That is taken care of. That's step three. Step four then is simply to go back to walking with God. Only now in a deeper way because you know him and his grace even more. That's what God does in the rest of the chapter, or 10 through 28, is he says, okay, let's renew the covenant. Let's renew our relationship. Let's go back to walking together. He declares, I am going to bless you. Everything's fine now. We're covered. I've forgiven your sin. So now I will take care of you. I will protect you. I will guard you. So renew your walk with me. God says, this is my part. I'll forgive you. I will bless you. Your part is to learn to trust me, to walk in faith. If you really look closely at the passage, and we just don't have time, it's too big a passage, but if you look at the things he asked Israel to do, have no idols before them. Make sure they celebrate three feasts. Keep the Sabbath. Bring the offerings to him. If you really think about these closely, what he's asking us to do is trust him with all that we are. Trust me with your worship, he says. Don't worship anybody else or anything else. Worship me alone. Just trust me with your worship. He also wants us to trust him with our family. Notice verse 19. The first offspring of every womb belongs to me including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. I think he's saying, remember that your family is mine, your firstborn, the one who gets most of your inheritance, the one you're counting on for future generations, your family. Trust them to me. Don't hang on to them. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to control them. But trust me with your family. He goes on to say, trust me with your possessions. Notice verse 20. Just read that. Redeem your firstborn donkey. And then verse 23. Three times a year, all your men are to appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory and no one will covet your land when you go up three times each year to appear before the Lord your God. All Israel was to appear in one place where the tabernacle was and later the temple. They were to leave their land and be gone for a period of time, maybe a period of weeks, while they traveled and worshipped for at least a week and then went back. That had to be scary. And yet... God is saying, I will enlarge your territory. I will have it, make it so no one even covets your land. I will protect your possessions. So trust me with your possessions. Trust me with your possessions. He also wants us to trust him with our work. With our work. Verse 21. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest, you must rest so easy for us to say, well, you know, I'm going to take time for God in my life, but 
work's pretty busy right now. You know, I, I've got to harvest. I've got to plow. I've got to do these projects. You know, they're counting on me. I need to do this. And I'll get around to my relationship with God and trusting him with my work later. <laughs> and God's saying, no, trust me with your work now, even during plowing and harvest. There is never a time when we can say, no, I'm too busy for God. So he says, trust me with your work. So all these major areas of life, God is saying, here's how I want you to walk with me in covenant relationship with me. Trust me with your worship. Trust me with your family. Trust me with your possessions. Trust me with your work. Because I'm a jealous God. Verse 14. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He's jealous like a jealous husband whose wife, he finds out is meeting regularly for coffee with another man. And she says, confronts her and she says, why are you so jealous? We're just friends. My response to when I've had someone tell me that, which has actually happened, was you should be jealous. God's jealous over us and our relationship. You need to protect your relationship. You need to put a stop to that. And that's the kind of jealousy God has. He doesn't want us trusting ourselves to anybody or anything else because he knows how destructive that will be for us. So he says, I'm a jealous God. Trust me. God longs for us to trust him because he knows that's the only way to receive the fullness of the blessings he longs to give us. We all sin. We all fail. We all fall into guilt. But God wants us to quit trying to deal with it ourselves and simply admit it to ourselves, to him, to others. Count on his character. Focus on that. Focus on our mediator, Jesus Christ, who who already bore the punishment for our sin and then get back in relationship with him. Start walking with him, trusting him, enjoying our relationship with him again. Much better way to deal with it than our way, isn't it? I think so. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much that you love us so, that you've provided a way to deal with our, our failure, our sin, our struggles. Thank you that your character, your glory, is one of forgiveness and compassion and grace. Help us, Lord, not to see you as some kind of judgmental God, but help us to see you as you really are, a God of compassion and kindness and forgiveness. And help us walk in that relationship with you of forgiveness and life. Thank you, Lord, that you love us that much and you provided a way through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.